Welcome to Cloudlandia. Mr. Sullivan. But where do the files go? That's what I want to know. <laughs> yeah, top secret <laughs> files. Top secret. Yeah. Yes. The party knows all. That's so funny. Well, welcome yeah. to Cloudlandia. You're, where are you? Right more now? and more. More and more. We're in it. We're more and more week by week, day by day. We're more and more in Cloudlandia. I agree with you. I'm considering immigrating. Well, <laughs> you know, I always think that the real big opportunity is the courier service between the two. I'm That's what we're doing. That's actually what we're doing. We're, we're currying their thoughts between the mainland and Cloudlandia. I think you're absolutely right. And that's really mm -hmm. where the, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the, you know, that transition from the, from imagination to reality is really a great thing. <clears throat> I've been really thinking about the, you know, I, my primary world is imagination, which, which is very Cloudlandia compliant. And it's, it, if you start thinking about the physical, I've been using the word constraint. But you know, I'm open to another word for it of reality of the of the mainland is really mm -hmm. works on reality time. There's there's no shape shifting, no you know. I think about imagination time. You can go backwards and forwards, and in any you know instantly be taking a thing from the past and projecting it forward into the future, thinking how a projected past might might take. But the reality is in the mainland, no matter what vision you set up in your imagination, there, if it's going to happen on the mainland, will require adherence to the constraints of reality. I was mm -hmm. thinking about it. If I were going to, if I decide in my imagination that I would love, I have a vision for, you know, having lunch with you at Select Bistro on Saturday, next Saturday. Now, the, I can imagine that because we've been there. I've got a history of it. I know I enjoy it. I can immediately recall all the times that you and I've been to Select Bistro, the Select, at the times that we've been to Jacques, and I can recall those. I can so I know and can anticipate that it would be delightful. But the reality is that in order for that to take place, I would have to move my physical meat robot from. Winter Haven on my couch in my courtyard right now to the Le Select Bistro. And mm -hmm. there's some physical realities to that. If we were having this conversation 150 years ago or 200 years ago, that would require traveling the 1,200 miles by foot or by horse or you know, some way to get train. There. Have to... You could do it. You could. 150 years ago, you could have done it by train. Okay, yeah. there you go. That would be the top yeah. speed of the thing, which would still take mm -hmm. some real time. You know, there's no way to shortcut that. You're going by the mm -hmm. speed of reality in that, right? And right now, yeah. the if I were going to walk it at four miles an hour, it would take 300 hours to get there. Or the fastest way possible to get there right now would be to, you know, take a private plane, a private jet from mm -hmm. the airport, 10 minutes from my house to the island airport. And I could probably be there touching down. <clears throat> I could probably be at Le Select Bistro three and a half to four hours from right now, if I decided to do Yeah, and they're and open so this no, morning. Yeah. So, yeah, they're open this morning. So you <laughs> Perfect. A little, uh, By the time you got yeah. here, the table would be waiting for you. Yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting to really, because I've been thinking about that in, in the same thing, taking that for everything that you want to transition from imagination to reality. And Mm -hmm. Writing a book is a perfect example of that, where if you're if you're going to write a book, you know that your quarterly books, I think you've told me it is about a 30 hour 35 process, hours, 30 35 hour process yeah. that and that's as fast as, you know, you that's, could run that in the world really of in the world of books. That's pretty fast. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And is that yeah. that 35 hours is the tip of, are you say, counting that 35 hours of your time or the? Yeah, 35 hours of my time. 30, no, right. it's several hundred hours of right. other people's uh, Yes, other so you're people's totally, time. you're leveraging everybody else. So it's knowing that kind of stuff and having your throughput system to get you, you plug into your throughput system that lets you put out a book every quarter for 35 hours. So you're talking 35 hours, than, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're talking less than yeah, we're just, uh, 50. We're just wrapping up the next one, and and this was quarter 32, and it was mm-hmm. book 32, book 32. So we're on mm-hmm. schedule because my goal was 100 books in 100 quarters. And yeah, <clears throat> but when the first one I did, which uh, involved working with your team, took me a little over 100 hours to pull that off. Mm-hmm. And by probably the next quarter, we had gotten it down to about 60 hours. And then it's been incremental drop, you know, efficiencies that you build into the system. Yeah. And you've removed, I think, I'm, I think, I think we worked on you with the first three and no, the first two, first two, the first two. Uh, and then by three, you had your own, uh, your team in yeah. place. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. had our own writer and I had my own interviewer, writer and editor by book number three. So, yeah. yeah. But the, you know, I was thinking the, the big multiplier of our times for individuals is number one teamwork because entrepreneurs, you know, the vast majority of them, I mean, there's great things said about entrepreneurism here in the 21st century, you know. Mm. But if you look at most entrepreneurs, they're kind of rugged individualists, you know, that they're entrepreneurial in the sense that nobody's paying them a salary, you know. Right, yeah, (laughs) they're in the results economy, right. Yeah, yeah, but when you take a look at what they've done, they really haven't created a business, they've created a job. Right. And, and And I suspect in most cases, I have no you know, idea of this, but they're actually working harder for <laughs> at the job they created for themselves than they ever could yeah. work. They worked at a job where they were working for someone else and yeah. uh, and not necessarily liking it any better. <laughs> and, right, right, right. That they yeah. say, uh, isn't that the thing where entrepreneurship is the only place where people will work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week for someone else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and their boss, uh, first of all, just first of all, the, yeah. yeah, first of all, there's real meaning to what you just said in mm-hmm. the sense that the, the sense of freedom uh, is worth working an extra 40 hours a week. And I said, well, I said, you know, there's, better ways of doing this. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. better ways of doing this. And the two multipliers are <clears throat> in the mainland world is teamwork with other people. And that's what mm-hmm. I've done with, you know, with the book project. The mm-hmm. one is technology. And that's really what Quadlandia is that, you know, we were talking about my most recent book, the book that was last quarter's book, which was called You Are Not a Computer. And I said, you know, it's an interesting thing, but with all the talk, and this has been going on for, this talking has been going on for a couple hundred years about Mm -hmm. how technology destroys jobs. Mm -hmm. And I think it destroys specific jobs, but it doesn't destroy, it doesn't destroy overall jobs. And, and because when the first technology that gave rise to that thought was actually milling, it was creating fabric, creating clothing. So it was around 1800, and 1800 was the first time that human being, human population reached a billion. They had pretty good statistics. Um, yeah. Most countries had census taking and they established it as a billion. And the last two centuries, one of the most notable features has been constantly increasing technology. And so that means that if 
You have this amazing increase of technology over 222 years, which we have had. Gee, that billion population would have to be down to maybe about 500 million, right? 500 million? Mm. I wonder, yeah. I mean, would have gotten. I mean, if they don't have a job, they're not eating, and so they're not <laughs> existing. But it also created yeah. other, you know, I think. Yeah, that, but the, the world population is 8 billion now, you know, and yeah. most, of them are, most of them are working. So it's been just the opposite, that mm-hmm. increasing technology creates increasing jobs, yeah, mm-hmm. increasing increasing jobs. Well, and actually, the yeah, new jobs. New opportunities, yeah, completely new. Like there's many people that are working in jobs that weren't even in existence 25 years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you go that far, you know, you look at it that so many people, the biggest, how many pa- the biggest podcasters companies, back then? Not, not many, many podcasters back then. No. And so all of that, every advancement creates new opportunities. I remember <clears> the <throat> talk when, uh, when I was researching Cyrus McCormick, the guy that invented mm-hmm. the Reaper, you know, and it was credited along with the telephone and the railroad as the three biggest things of the 19th century, I guess the 1800s, that were, that paved the way for the industrialization. We shift from an agricultural society to an industrial (coughs) society because it freed up people out of the, out of the fields into the factories. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the number that you gave me when you told the the Cyrus McCormick story Mm. that one person with a horse and a reaper could equal the work of 18 people, 17 or 18, 14 men. Yeah, 14. Okay, 14 men. So, and immediately people think, well, those 14 were unemployed. And I said, Mm -hmm. well. I said, well, it'd be interesting to put some thought to that because actually probably a third of those people saw what had happened and they went out and they got land and they got McCormick Reapers, did the same thing. So actually they did it and others became McCormick dealer McCormick yeah. Reaper yeah. dealer. Reaper dealer, right. Exactly. Reaper dealer, yeah. <laughs> a Reaper dealer. Uh-huh. <laughs> what do you do? Oh, what do you do for a living? I'm a Reaper dealer. Yeah, and, you know, and, you know, it's like human beings can't respond creatively to something new. It's that mm-hmm. whole basis is always based on, you know, the way humans are. Humans can't, they, they don't have enough sense to see what's going on around them. And they mm. don't, they can't see what just happened. And because, you know, that they don't have a mind that can actually just adjust to circumstances and take advantage of new opp- opportunities. <laughs> You know, and it's always, you know, it's always based that terrible things are going to happen to the human race because the human race is incapable of reacting to anything new. You know, Uh, I mean, it's a foolish thought. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you look, I mean, that's, yeah, everything adapts, right? It's funny you say people might become dealers, you know, reaper dealers, but that was, (laughs) you know, on the back of it, that was when I first discovered it, the... Uh, the first thought about the compelling offer versus the convincing argument. A convincing argument is, hey, you could do the work of 14 men, but a compelling offer is, hey, why don't you let me, why don't you, why don't I let you use the Reaper for the heart, for the season here, and you could pay and me. And you can pay me harvest. at the end. Yeah, and pay me pay from me. the harvest. And yeah, that was me. a compelling offer that, because everybody was yeah. convinced that it was a good thing. They just couldn't afford it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that paved the way. Yeah, I think probably, you know, to put your two argument and offer together, that the final step of a convincing argument has to be a compelling offer. Yes, and you need most. In order for it to be a compelling offer, they have to, you know, fundamentally 
be interested in the argument in a way that if it's, you know, the, if there's no, there's no argument that if they're not convinced that this, that the Reaper's going to be a benefit for them, but it's an interesting, like chicken and egg sort of situation. You know, it's, you have to still present the convincing argument that, that does make but the compelling offer is what gets into action, you know? Yeah, from a marketing standpoint, we don't think convincing arguments attract attention. No. So so, uh, I think it's probably a compelling offer. And they say, oh, tell me all about it. And Mm. you bring on the convincing argument. And then just to get them to take action, you you top the first compelling offer with another compelling offer. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly, that's the model. So first of all, we do it. So the first four profit activators in our eight profit activator model are selecting a single target market. So you're in, in that, that harmonizes with your idea of always be the buyer. You're doing the select. I have to outline for people or go through this process that this is different than positioning yourself to be selected, which is what most people yeah. are thinking when they're doing advertising. They're thinking, I want to cast a wide net so that anybody that could possibly be interested in what we do will be able to select us, right? Being, you know, doing the selecting is picking who you're, you know, a, a great place to start is thinking about your largest check. And thinking mm-hmm. about who are the, who's your ideal client. And then you go mm-hmm. out and select them. And now the compelling and convincing where that, where I look at those, and you're exactly right. It's that three step process of compelling your prospects at first just to raise their hand and say, and pay attention to you in that. Yes. Yeah. Pay attention. So you do it in a way that is, that is compelling to them. I was using an example. There's a great series of books. And one of them is read this if you want to take great photographs. That's the name of the book, the title of the book. And he's also got in that series, a book called read this if you want to take great photographs of people. And then read this if you want to take great photographs of places. So the way I say to people is if you've got a company, you've got services that you offer to photographers and you've got, you know, training courses or equipment or any of the things that support people in their photography endeavor. Rather than making a convincing argument that, hey, our cameras are the best for taking for taking photographs of people, you first of all have to just get in front of people who are potentially interested in taking photographs of people. That's the end result, right? It's the thing that they really want. So having a book like that, getting people to raise their hand, that's compelling them to turn from being an invisible prospect into a visible prospect because now you, you know, pulled them out of the woodwork. We've used this example so many different ways in Toronto. I worked with a, party rental company and you know be convincing people to choose you for their party rental needs is an uphill thing and i was asking them about what's the you know what is their who'd be their dream client what would be their largest check and they said an outdoor wedding is like the big win at the tents and the generators and everything that goes with it almost everything they have gets used for an outdoor wedding. But trying to convince people to choose you for your, as a party rental company for the outdoor wedding is an uphill climb. So we, rather than putting, making that convincing argument, you know, McLean party rental since 1963, serving Toronto, you know, all these things that build up your, what you think would be a convincing argument to choose you over other options is to put all that aside and just realize people who are about to have a wedding are invisible 
prospects. You can't get a list of them, and but you can build a list of them by compelling and the other thing is they, what they want. They don't do it all the time. Right. That's you why. Know, I exactly. Mean, I mean, the bride and the groom aren't doing this every three months, you hope. <laughs> so Yeah. So we put together a directory of 100 great places to have an outdoor wedding in Toronto. And that was what we would advertise. And when people respond and ask for the outdoor wedding. That was really director, the big, that was the really big decision. Yes. Where is it going to be? Exactly at? right. And you get right up to the front of the line as far as the priority of decisions. And now you're in contact with somebody who has got, who's a visible prospect with a real timeline, probably, you know, six to 24 months of planning or time. And you're the only party rental company that knows this ahead of time. You've got a list of them. So that was a compelling thing, getting, because it's what they're interested in. It's You're tapping into the jet stream that way. And then we're able to convince them that going with McLean party rental would be the big win, you know? It's because of all the, then it makes sense yeah. when they start to get to choose. But yeah, it's really interesting. I was just in workshop last Thursday with somebody who's been in coach for 31 years. So I've seen him every, mm. the minimum I've seen, at a minimum, I've seen him every quarter for 31 years. And then with the new Zoom connector calls, I, that probably, yeah. you know, is is double it's, it's mm-hmm. double that now and but we were just chatting because he had moved to toronto in the 1970s with his father his father had the had a printing operation you know you know retail printer you know he would you know and and but because of the language loss in um in quebec he had moved to toronto and so he was starting into a new market in Toronto and everything like that. But he did well enough that he could, you know, he could be attracted to strategic coach. And, he, mm-hmm. you know, he saw this as an investment. So the first day I sat down, he, the workshop hadn't started. And I sat down next to him and I asked him what he did. And he says, printer. And I says, boy, you must have been a really evil person in your last life. That this uh. is the punishment in this life. And I said, I don't think there's an industry in the world where you get commoditized to death as a normal daily experience, you know, and everything. And I said, you know, I think printing is very important. And I said, we do a lot of printing. And for only as technology increases, you're only going to get more commoditized. And he really took me seriously. So I'm going to make a very long story very short. And I'm just going to say that today he's a marketer. He's an yeah. innovative marketer. And only he lives in Toronto, but all of his customers are in New York, New York City, mostly Manhattan or wow. maybe a couple of the other cities. And what he does is he's he has a real gift for designing very innovative envelopes so just for direct mail just for, and a lot of our listeners will not appreciate this fact but it's absolutely true that to this day the single most effective form of direct marketing is the mail system the mail so when you send out a, a piece of mail that has much bigger rate than any other form of communication okay So anyway, but he creates these very innovative and he's gotten them patented. So he has a patent. Mm -hmm. And now he has, I think, five of the biggest financial corporations in the United States as clients. And he designs programs for their, you know, their direct mail campaigns for, you know, credit credit cards or, you know, other services that they offer. And, And these all require printing. And he's the only printer that they can go through. His ideas. His ideas. He does the brokering or whatever. Yeah. If if you buy this, you want this unique 
proprietary idea for your thing. I get all the printing. And on any particular project, the amount of money he makes off that project is 10 times what he would make in a year and 31 years ago without yeah. a bid. There's no bids. Mm-hmm. No bids. So he doesn't do it. So what he's done is that what they don't actually want printing. What they want is new customers. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, so result. he had to approach yeah. it a completely different way. And the other thing is right now, you know, he lives in Toronto, but all the money is generated in the United States. And mm-hmm. when I looked Friday morning, the exchange rate is a dollar thirty-eight right now. So he's wow. getting dollar thirty-eight dollars to buy, you know, a dollar of printing and like that, you know. So the interesting thing is he's not talking to them about printing. He doesn't even, the subject of printing doesn't come right. up until they say, well, how soon can we get the project out there? And he says, well, yeah. we'll have to look at the printing schedule here. So you le- let's just look at the dates here. And, and there's no discussion about who the printer is going to be. He's the printer. I love that. I just got and actually, he you. isn't a printer. He uses print shops in Toronto, you know, to mm-hmm. use it. And they do absolutely nothing to not have him want them as their printer, you know, because mm-hmm. jobs are so big, you know. So absolutely. anyway, so going back to the start of the <clears throat> podcast, you were talking about imagination, you know, uh, all failure of business and all failure of employment is a failure of imagination. I'd love to hear that unpacked. Well, <laughs> what you're compelling offer, you know, 10 times more persuasive than a convincing yeah. a convincing argument. The one factor you're taking in, into consideration there is what does it look like from the other person's point of view? Right. Yes. And that's really, that, that's the big win is if you can, you know, still in their imagination, your vision for their outcome, that they get compelled by that. That's really, uh, that's really the thing. Everybody wants the outcome. <coughs> and we're really in a point now where the, you know, I've, when we were talking about the VCR formula vision, capability and reach that all of the elements of those things now, just like that marketplace in China, the electronics marketplace are available. There's no revolutionary new electronic componentry that needs to be invented, right? That's not, we're not trying to solve any of the the hardware problems. All of that's been, all of that's available and commoditized. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I, I kind of look at commoditized has always had sort of a negative connotation if you're a business owner that it's trying to, you know, then of course the margins are going down this competition, there's more options. But if I'm looking at, if you're a visionary, the commoditization of capabilities is a winning thing. And I'm, I just use, when I'm talking about commoditized meaning, available for sale or available for you to actually to either purchase or partner or acquire those capabilities. But that's, I mean, yeah, I think the, yeah, you know, I've looked at it from both ways because we, I think that there's a difference between automation and commoditization, you know, Mm -hmm. in other words, that under your term of reach, you know, you're not commoditizing something to have reach. You're putting something in the hands of people who can instantly put your product, your product offering, and your product itself into the hands. Yeah, but I look at in a lot of ways, reach is the way I would think about reach as a commodity is that it's available for hire. You can right now you can buy from from Facebook access to their uh, newsfeed, you know, and show your ad specifically to any segment of their audience that you choose. You know, you don't have to build that audience. You don't have to do anything. Get right in front of them. YouTube, that all of those eyeballs 
that access to that reach is commoditized in that you can buy it. You can show ads to specific people who watch specific things, even to the point where you can show, you can reach an audience on YouTube of people who were just four hours ago searching on Google for something. You know, somebody searches mm -hmm. for red wagons on Google, and then four hours later, they're surfing on YouTube watching, you know, cat videos, and comes you with, hey, are you looking for a red wagon? Come on down to Red Wagon Village, you know, mm -hmm. get right in front of your exact audience that you need to get in front. Mm -hmm. And so all of that is, you know, that's used to be what even the postal service that you talk about is a commoditization of reach. You have to pay. So that's where either capital or organic is how you know, it's building that reach. Mr. Beast, the advantage that he has is that he's got a hundred million subscribers that he can access for free because he's built up all of that, that audience, you know, but they get monetized because you can, you can show ads on a Mr. Beast video if that's your target mm -hmm. audience, right? Mm -hmm. There's just such ha having, recognizing your assets all across that, the VCR formula is, you know, vision assets is intellectual mm -hmm. property of knowing what to do. Capability mm -hmm. assets are mm -hmm. equipment, people, technology, tools, you know, manufacturing, anything that you need to actually organize to be able to do something and then reach assets can be access to your, your audience, to your clients, to your stuff. So <coughs> you can participate in the VCR formula with whatever assets you have, you know, you could be a vital mm -hmm. part of that. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens unless somebody's got a vision for it. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I think happens, and, you know, I've worked, I'm constantly, this is, you know, constant thought process going on inside my brain. And I mm -hmm. said, what is it that when opportunity is staring someone in the face, they don't take a, they don't take the opportunity when the opportunity completely matches what they want, you know, what they say they, what they say they want. Okay. Uh, and what I've realized is that they have other conditions that they're not putting on the table. And one of them is it can't disturb my overall life at all. You know, if you say you're going to take my opportunity up 10 times, that's not going to come without a price. Right. Okay. Okay. And I think that more and more, for example, something that we've been on to and it's been really dramatic has to do with getting our clients to renew into the program at the end of a program year. Okay. Mm -hmm. So always, you know, it's another sale to a certain extent. I mean, some people it's a given, you know, you don't, they're just automatically going to sign up. But, you know, I would say that they're, and there's, it's a given that certain people are not going to sign up. Okay. Yeah, And I would say, you know, I don't have any numbers that come to mind right off the bat, but the, our success really depends upon the the percentage of the total number of clients at the end of each year that mm -hmm. have to be re-engaged re or resold mm -hmm. with why they're doing with why they're doing this. And and. The interesting thing is you'll have entrepreneurs and strategic coach who just had their greatest year ever and and they say and it's time for renewal and they say, Well, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really I'm not really sure. You know, I'm not really sure I'm gonna come and they said, But you just you were saying that to everybody in the workshop. You were just having mm -hmm. your best year ever. So what is it? Why wouldn't you wanna continue on with that? And I said, well, you know, I got to really think about this. Okay. And I told my program advisors who are the, you know, they're the 
they make that sale. The program advisors are the people responsible for moving people from one year to the next by renewing. And I say, I'm going to give you a tip. It doesn't have anything to do with their business. It has to do with what's what's happening in their personal life. And they say, I said, that year of extraordinary growth created pressures on them from the people that they know, because the people they know are not having extraordinary years. And so what, one of the things is that you're a marketer, and on the face of it, the programs you put together are a no-brainer, and yet people don't necessarily, not as many people as you think, would just immediately engage and initiate them. Right. That's where that is. And that's the frustration of things like you, you just said it on the head. Like, you know, on the one thing that they, it works. I was, I take this approach where I look at your return on relationship is one thing that you mm-hmm. measure in the after unit of a business. So when you look mm-hmm. at what you're describing there, is we would, if I were looking and overlaying this on strategic coach, I would say, okay, the after unit of your business is, I would call it everybody who's in year two or beyond of the program and the, and measure the percentage of revenue that comes from that you know, relationship portfolio, the people that have successfully moved into year two, I would call that the after unit. And I would call the during unit year one of the program. Mm -hmm. They're getting it established. And then if they move into year two, the odds much higher that they're going to stay even longer, you know? And so when we look at establishing that in people's minds, like for strategic coach members. And I've had this conversation with Joe Polish that we've mm-hmm. been talking about this idea of return on genius, where document and get people to really put a number to the tangible return on genius. So within Genius Network, the things that are going to have an impact are going to be primarily ideas that you got an idea that you then implemented and it generated this much, this outcome for you or contact that you mm-hmm. met somebody who became a client or became a resource or became a collaboration that had a monetary gain, you know, what the payoff was. And I think ultimately that's the, one of the biggest things yeah. you could show that it like it would be pretty compelling where if you get people to think in lines that they are that it's paying for itself yeah if you look at you you've told the story of in genius network and the first meeting the concept of first hour the the first hour of 10 times first in your mind you got that idea was planted you can go right to there and say that was where I birthed the idea of the 10 times program. And now you set that into motion and what has been the impact of that over, you know, the ongoing, you know, keep continuing to go. And that whole reframing the investment, and then we use that language too as a capital investment, in Genius Network, as opposed to thinking about it as a $25,000 or $100,000 expense to frame it as a, I've said to Joe, thinking, setting up a 10-year context, to think of it as a $250,000 investment allocated $25,000 a year for the next 10 Mm -hmm. years to chart and measure when people mm-hmm. reach escape velocity. Like I could see it'd yeah. be an interesting exercise. Like yeah, a, you know, the, the other, yeah, I think that the other aspect is in the book that we're 
writing this quarter is called Thinking About Your Thinking, which I think really the new state of mind that people acquire from repeated strategic coach workshops. Okay. And after a while, they don't really pay that much attention to what the world is thinking about anything. They more and more just pay attention to what their where their own thinking about brain your is. thinking yeah yeah thank you about your th- thinking <laughs> and i said you know what it is and somebody said you know you're creative dan you know you're very creative you just we always know you're going to have new stuff every quarter and and they said what how do you do that and i said well i've heard that my brain is an independent force with a will with a will of its own <laughs> okay. And, and so what I've learned to do more and more every year is to put myself in the best possible position where I can collaborate with my own brain. Okay. Because, it, because my brain's going to do what it wants. And so instead of trying to, you know, put a leash on it and say, you can only go here, you can only go here, you can't go there and everything like that. I say, you can go wherever you want to go, but just bear in mind that I have to catch up with you every now and then. Mm-hmm. I, haven't quite, uh, I haven't quite learned the game yet of adjusting quickly to new places where you take me. So I just want you to be patient with me. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, wor- I'm working on myself to be in top-notch condition, prime condition, that mm-hmm. wherever you go, I can go there with you and I'll benefit from the journey. You know, yeah. and and anyway, and that's literally the truth. How I experienced my relationship with my own brain, and people say, "Well, you, you, aren't you paying attention to what's going on in the world?" I says, "I have to tell you, I just don't have time. My my brain just well, keeps I'm me so busy. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeps yeah. Me, my brain just keeps me so busy. You know, I wish you know, I wish I had the time to actually pay attention to a lot of other things, but I yeah." Huh, I, I, quite frankly, you know, I'm just, yeah, but, you know, if I get through the day and I've done a good job of collaborating with my brain, I have to tell you, that's a great day. Yes. That's so great. What do you I, think I about that. that? No, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think about this, my, my life, like for 25 years now, more than that now, 27 years, I started journaling in earnest in April of, of 1996. So, you know, 26 years of, of journaling, which I look at as a constant conversation with my brain, this ongoing dialogue we have, you know, is thinking about my thinking. And I, it's my favorite, my favorite thing. You know, mm-hmm. the thing that I just need, a, I need a pen and a notebook and a comfy chair. And we're off, you know, it's just, it's effortless. Mm -hmm. And luckily I've been able to create outlets in the real world for, you know, for the things. One of the real, like the things I've been really thinking about my thinking on is what I've discovered recently with Russell Barkley, the ADHD doctor, completely Mm -hmm. reframing and realizing that, you know, the building and the exoskeleton idea that I don't know why this wasn't more obvious to me, but I really started looking that every single good thing that's come in, everything that works in my life is surrounded by a scaffolding that externally supports it and makes it happen. Oh yeah. Not I have been sort of you no know, you know, resistant to that idea in a lot of ways. Like I even the, my I you know, I know I'm being successful when I wake up every day and say, what would I like to do today? Because in my mind, my mistaken sort of thought was that I need space to be able to get things done. You know, like if mm-hmm. I have all the time then I could wrangle and focus my brain to to get stuff done, but this reshaping my mind of looking at at my AD as a real, you know, I'll use the word disability uh, as a thing of just not having executive function, meaning not the mobility to move my ideas from the imagination world, the imagination side of the equation. I'm a billionaire 
in that <laughs> mind level and uh, but moving it into the reality side requires on some level you know real movement right and that's i saw one of his videos where he likens it you wouldn't say to a paraplegic well all you got to do is just get up and run just it's right over there you know and as as easy and seem obvious as it seems you just got to buckle down that's where i've been taking that approach on myself of looking at it as i just need to buckle down and discipline myself and get myself to take action and control myself into it when i realize it's not a matter of will it's a truly matter of ability you know and that's yeah so then the job is setting up yeah and no and each of us only has the ability that we have but for there to be a maximum external result it's going to require your ability to be multiplied by many other abilities and that's that's exactly right so every the biggest wins in my life have come from plugging into an existing executive function branch <laughs> that has the ability mm-hmm. to take i could plug in my ideas into an existing infrastructure that is an execution engine or has the executive function to to take things and turn ideas into into results yeah compared to yeah. trying to and wondering why have i continually underperformed in my ability to execute on my own ideas on my own behalf yeah, yeah. you know that's been a big yeah. that's been a big you know, thing uh, looking at it historically i can understand why this idea didn't appear before and why cuz i'm well because the number one the number one task that really used up everybody's daily energies and their attention was just having enough to eat and that the reason why america went through the roof you know from you know if you think about even when the revolution happened there were there were about 3 million americans that, that's how many people there were when the country started you know and let's say washington as first president you're up to about 4 million and that had happened in about a 25-year period, which is pretty good when you think about yeah. it. Their population went up, you know, by 33% in 25 years. And America was the only society where food was a given. You, they, you know, the, they were able to produce their own food. They had unlimited protein, especially with hunting and you know, mm-hmm. animals and fishing and mm-hmm. everything like that. And there's a pretty well-established rule that in order to do work above physical work and, you know, have the leisure to do more than physical work requires an average of at least 2,500 calories a day. Okay, you mm-hmm. have at least 2,500 calories a day. Mm-hmm. Since its birth, the U.S. has averaged basically about 3,500 calories a day, okay? That means that over the last 200, 300 years, Americans have just had a calorie advantage that nobody else in the world has, you know? I and, thought of it like that. Yeah, and so what meant that there could be more and more mental work, okay? Hmm. And one of the prime ways that mental work was used is figuring out how to reduce physical work. So we're the beneficiaries. We're sitting here in 2020, 2022, and we have just the enormous growth of over, you know, I mean, if you go right back to the beginning, 1600, so it's 400 years of calorie-rich humans actually creating more and more scaffolding for us outside so that once we get an idea, it just goes boom. The idea just mm-hmm. goes, you know, all our mental work immediately is multiplied outside of ourselves if it's actually mm-hmm. creating value for other people. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's what I'm saying right there. That's, yeah. And now, of course, 
if you carry that line all the way, like, you know, initially it was, that's what all the mechanical, all the industrial things be able to create things and then to move them around the country, you're increasingly easier and easier, yep. you know, moving physical goods from, you know, the railroad opened up national distribution opportunities for, yeah. for companies. Yeah. Now, yeah. And I mean, quite frank, quite frankly, probably one of the great multipliers for Cyrus McCormick was yeah. actually that he could get customers who would telegraph him and saying, I'd like to get in on your pay after the harvest deal. Could you yeah. send me a harvester? And that yeah. harvester on uh, Cyrus it would be packaged up, taken down to the local rail station. And within yeah. a matter of three days, that person would have their harvester. Yeah. You know? And so my sense is that he came along and he could do what he was doing because there were other technologies that were breakthrough technologies like his own that would yeah. deliver the goods. That yeah. Once he had the goods, there there was a delivery system for the goods. Yeah. And now you think about, you know, if you fast forward now, we're on the cusp yeah. of where we're delivering digital products digitally to a global yeah. audience that there's mm-hmm. zero friction, zero cost. You know, there's, so that's where there's so that's where we are right now. There's so much, so much. Yeah, and there's not there's never any end to it. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I hope we use it all up before there isn't any more. <laughs> right. You know, exactly. Yeah, and but if we lived in the physical world, there's very a very good chance of that happening. I mean, if if uh, you know you're you were strictly a mainland operation, there's there is an end to things. Yeah. Well, real limits of things that we're going to face into our attention, that that's yep. the finite, that's the finite resource we've already got. Yep. I did the most recent calculations on YouTube. It would take 32,000 years of eight hour days to consume one day's worth of uploads to YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the but, you know the appetite but, but, uh, but the, the, nobody has the goal but nobody has the goal to do that, you know what I mean? Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you know, it's you know, we calculate, you know, humans, you know, we calculate uh, we have the same, you know, intentionality as an oak tree or a oak tree or right. a maple tree. So I'm go it's it's acorn dropping season right now in in Tor- Toronto. At, I look out there and there's, there's just, it seems like millions of acorns all of a sudden came down over over the night. And I said, but each of these was supposed to be an oak tree. And, right. <laughs> you know, and they're all wasted. Yeah. And they're all wasted. And they said, well, you know, each of the oak trees got here because one of them took root, you know, and yeah. maple trees. So, so the big thing about it is that what you're looking for is effectiveness, not efficiency. That, yeah. that yeah, you know, that you don't want every oak, you don't want every acorn to become an oak tree. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah. A lot of it, you just want to be squirrel food. Squirrel <laughs> yeah. food. Uh, that's right. Yeah, and everything, and so it's a, it's very very interesting because I think that um, the same principles of manufacturing in the mainland world are also going to be absolutely true in the digital world. Yeah, and looks to me like Mr. Beast is like the Cyrus McCormick. Of, you know, he's sort of yeah. Like I just, I'll keep an eye on the. So he's over sixteen hundred Mr. Beast restaurants right now. Restaurant. And well, of locations, like other people's re- collaborations, let's call it. Sixteen hundred yeah. collaborations using excess capacity capabilities in other restaurants to deliver over a hundred million dollars revenue. And he just opened a physical location in New Jersey that's doing $30,000 a day right now. 
Why wouldn't you it? Know? Why wouldn't <laughs> it? Indeed. Exactly. Yeah. But I think he's like, you know, I mean, he's doing in the digital world what Cyrus McCormick or Henry Ford or what they did in the what they did in the mainland world. Yeah. Well, the other thing I'm keeping an eye on is Cole, who partnered with Amazon to do all of their mm-hmm. returns. They, yeah. they added 2 million customers a year. They just partnered with Sephora to open mm-hmm. a Sephora makeup store in all of the Kohl's stores. So this yeah. idea of like Toys R Us inside of Macy's and, you know, restaurants within restaurants, these collaborations and, you know, looking at these capability assets, capacity, excess capacity as a immediately harvestable opportunity, you know? Yeah. I think one of the, there's a really interesting phenomena that's happening in the world right now. And the Japanese are actually the trailblazers on this, that because the age of global trade is actually over, it's actually been over for about 10 years now, you know, and part of the reason is that the U.S. went basically about 60, 60 years where they didn't protect their own economy with tariffs. Okay, so producers in their own economy. And so everybody in the world was allowed to sell into the United States with no penalty. There was no penalty for selling into the United States. And that built up the world, you know, that built up the world, but it didn't build up the United States. Actually, the U.S. basically paid a price, a sacrifice Mm. of jobs, sacrifice of communities, sacrifice of that uh, to educate the rest of the world. But now the U.S. has decided not to do that again. And it started with Clinton, and then you went Bush and Obama, and Trump was the one who announced that it was a new situation, and Biden's doing basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. And what the New Deal is, you can't sell your products into the United States, but you can move your factories to the United States. Oh, Wow. So Japan, almost their entire, you know, and Japan has basically moved its manufacturing out of Japan. And a large large amount of it has gone to the United States, like Toyota and, you know, Mazda and everybody else. And they're, they're, they're throughout, mostly in the southern United States in terms of the because they only go to right to work states. So they don't go to union states. Okay. Mm. But think about that you know, as the new phenomenon. Yeah. Yep. You can sell it to Americans, but your factory's got to be where the Americans are. And guess what? The people working in your factories have to be Americans. Wow. That's great. What do you think about that? I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like that. It's so obvious. Well, the other thing is that the, States, and you're talking about everything that's not a unionized state, and it's the larger percentage of states in the United States where they are in you know in the world, and they have their factories. Probably 25 percent of their expenses are just bribes. They're just bribes to get a license to you know and everything else. And they say, well, here you don't have to. You just you, you just take the bribe money and put it into creating a better factory and everything else. So I think that the U.S. is, I don't know if this, you know, I I can't think that there was anybody who saw this in 1945 that set it up, but it just happens Mm -hmm. to be turning out this way. So that's my Mr. Beast project. I'm going to follow this. And I will report back into Welcome to Claudlandia on a satisfying basis. I like what I'm hearing you know, I'm going to report to this that I think the U.S. has come up with an entirely new way of running your economy. Anybody who's got a successful factory anywhere in the world, invite them to bring their factory and establish well, it like in the United States. sharing their our reach. That's really yeah. this is grant, grant Well, the other thing is, you know what reach. the U.S. Yeah. You know what the U.S. has a lot of. Um, space. That's true. That too. Yeah, yeah. 
You could double the population of the United States and the country still wouldn't feel crowded. Yeah, I just saw some, if you look at, I forget what percentage of the population, 80% of the population of the United States lives kind of east of the middle of the country. If you draw a line up the middle, yeah, 80 plus percent of the population. Yeah, the Mississippi River, essentially the Mississippi River. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we we only opened up about <laughs> ten possibilities for future exploration of this Absolutely, goal. yeah, yeah. But I will report back on this massive movement because I think this is one of the most extraordinary global economic yeah. innovation. I love it. Yep, always enjoyable, Dan. Okay. Okay, have a great day. Okay, bye.